Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to tribevest.com to get started today. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. If you're just working in W-2 or whatever and just getting taxed on what you earn, then you're missing out on some of the great benefits that passive investing can have, which is tax benefits. So is that something you're looking to do as well? Once you get clear on what your investing goals are, cash flow, tax appreciation, and any of the other wealth building factors that come into it, then you can start to gravitate towards asset classes. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Matt Faircloth with us. He's been a full-time investor for over 15 years, and he has successfully completed fix and flips, office building, single-family homes, and apartment building projects. He has amassed a portfolio of over 1,000 units and raised tens of millions of equity for these real estate projects in both debt and equity positions from passive investors. He is also the author of Raising Private Capital, How to Build Your Real Estate Empire with Other People's Money, which is published by by Bigger Pockets Publishing and has sold over 50,000 copies as an Amazon bestseller. That is amazing. Matt, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thank you so much for that great intro, and it's an honor to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And uh, the first thing I always ask is kind of tell us, tell us a little bit about your journey. How'd you find real estate? How'd you get into it? How'd you hook up with you know, Bigger Pockets? And how'd you become a, an operator? It's all luck, Jim. Uh, I, 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 I lucked into marrying a phenomenal woman who put rich dad, poor dad in my hand, uh, in the early two thousands. And so that's how I happened into real estate because she put that in my hand and I said, huh, this is interesting. This is a whole new way to look at life. Right. Um, right. And so I became very passionate about real estate investing, sort of playing, uh, Kiyosaki's flow board game all the time in my mid twenties, um, and bought a, uh, bought my first rental that I lived in, lived in one room, rented out the other two rooms to two of my buddies, uh, 
Um, and that was my first rental property. And then we slowly started to scale, Liz and I did. And I, I did what any wise man would do when a woman puts rich dad, poor dad in your hand, you marry her, you know? Uh, <laughs> so uh, Liz and I got married in 2005 and started doing real estate investing and um, and that. And uh, I just started investing in Trenton, uh, where we, which was just a few towns away from where we lived. And so it was a good uh, workforce housing market. So we, we learned uh, from the ground up how to become good land. Landlords, and so I was everything from the uh, the property finder to the money finder to the tenant finder to the rent collector, everything. Um, and so we just you know scaled it from there, bumped into a lot of walls, made a lot of mistakes, you know, made some money and and uh, and that, and just learned along the way. And uh, did that business, ran that business gym with our own capital and with some of our immediate family capital. Um, until one day when my, uh, very, very wise, uh, wife was having coffee with somebody she went to grad school with and, uh, told, told this person all about a real estate investing journey. And he said the magic words, which are real estate investing. That sounds interesting. I just, I'd love to do that too. I just don't have the time. Um, and the, and the, you just re- realized the correlation between our time, what we could put together for him, this, this friend of hers, uh, and his money that he was putting in 78 hours a week as a financial planner on wall street. Um, but had extra money that he wanted to put to work, uh, with someone else doing the time investment for him. And so, uh, we worked out a great arrangement and he was our very first passive investor. Um, and we were off to the races from there and we were able to build and grow our portfolio quite a bit over the years. And it was, um, it, it was, it's, it's been great. And the bigger pockets thing was a hundred percent just <laughs> happened to catch a small startup company, uh, that was getting going, uh, when they first, uh, when they, when they first were, you know, opening themselves up as a blog and needed authors. And Liz and I had a good story and we positioned ourselves, we approached them to say, hey, we'd love to write articles for you. And so we happened to be in the right place at the right time. So there's the luck part of it. That's the 1%. Yeah. The other 99% was the work that Liz and I did in writing articles for them for years, um, as, uh, as contributors until we got on the podcast years later. So Liz and I were uh, blog authors for the Bigger Pockets po- uh, blog for years and years and years. And then we got we made it all our way onto the podcast and worked our way in and um, continued to do great by the organization and put the organization first and worked hard. And that's how, uh, you know, we elevated ourselves as contributors for BP over the years. Yeah, that, that, that that's great. It's a great story. And um, you mentioned Liz a, a, a few times uh, so you guys are the first uh, husband and wife team that have been on this podcast because episode 38, back from November 2021, Liz was on the uh, Past Investing from Left Field podcast. So that'll be in the show notes and you, and you can go check that out yeah. and everyone can maybe uh, vote and say who's the better guest. That'll be it's that'll hard. be fun. I vote for her. I haven't <laughs> even done the show with you yet, Jim, and I vote for her. But um, And we're actually uh, you know a husband and wife uh, couple that works together, invests together, lives together, and, and is, is happy together. Um, and uh, uh, in, in that. And so uh, there's a lot of concepts. We'd have to get on on this show. I, I think we'll just have to invite ourselves back on your show with the both of us because uh, that's a whole, sure. you, you think you think she's a who bring the both of us together when she can <laughs> throw barbs and arrows at her husband and, and uh, you know, you use, uh, you use me for the punchline for a lot of her jokes and all that kind of stuff. It's great. Um, we have a, we have a good banter <laughs> together uh, in that. And we'd love to, to carry that conversation forward about what it is to work and invest and, and live happily together. 
Yeah, that, that, that's awesome because that, that's an important thing too to be able to – because a lot of people get into real estate and then their spouse maybe doesn't understand it or hasn't yeah. read the, the little purple book and it isn't buying in. And so a lot of this is, hey, how do I convince my spouse, whether it's being an active or a passive investor, how do I get them to uh, to come along? And so I think that that's a very interesting topic and, and how do you actually do that, right? That's that's the question. Yeah, we'd love to engage in that further. And the bottom line, Jim, is you don't. You're not going to get very far. If your spouse is not – uh, 100% in agreement towards the uh, journey of passive investing um, and, uh, and and the time and money and attention that it takes, whether it's real estate or not. Um, if they want to just fire and forget and put their money into Wall Street and cross their fingers and hope it goes up, um, that's great. But you're not going to get very far in alternative passive investments because you need your spouse's buy-in to, to get yeah. real success in this business. Yeah. So talking about success, if you're a passive investor, how do you how do you get into this, right? I mean, that's part of what left field investors does is we mm-hmm. try to help people with the opening steps. But from the perspective of someone like you who's an operator and a passive investor, what are some of the things that you would recommend to investors who are maybe just getting started and they're not sure, hey, how do I even get into this thing? How do I start? Well, I, I think that, that you don't want to just go and, and Google passive investing, you know, and, um, and, and just, and, you know, throw money to the first one that comes up in the Google search, right? Uh, what you want to do is do uh, research on companies, of course, but before you even do that, you want to get clear about what you want, right? Like ask yourself, you know, through my passive investing journey, what does life look like in five years? Are you looking to generate enough passive income to quit your job? You know, uh, are you looking simply just to build your net worth? Do you love what you do? You know, um, are you not sure what you would do with yourself if you quit your job? You know, like does it, right. does, your, does your job keep you, uh, well behaved? Right. Um, and so maybe you don't want to leave your job. Maybe you want to keep doing that, but you also get that you don't want to be attached to the roulette wheel of wall street and, uh, and have that be your only vehicle for financial freedom. Um, and so, uh, whatever that may be, and th- that could be appreciation growth, it could be cash flow, uh, could be tax leverage, right, Jim? I mean, if those, uh, if you're just, uh, working your W-2 or whatever, and just getting taxed on what you earn, um, then you're missing out on some of the great benefits that passive investing can have, which is tax benefits. So is that something you're looking to do as well? Once you get clear on what your investing goals are, cash flow, tax appreciation, um, you know, uh, the, uh, any of the other wealth building factors that come into it, then you can start to gravitate towards asset classes because, you know, things like, you know, oil and gas or multifamily real estate or just sticks and bricks investing may have tax advantages, may have some appreciation, may not have a whole lot of cash flow in the beginning. Um, and other things like hard money loans, debt funds, those kinds of things may have lots of cash flow, um, probably not much appreciation and zero tax advantages. So really, you could very easily, Jim, without doing that, looking yourself in the mirror, so to speak, you could end up making the very wrong investment and not getting where you want to go unless you get clear on that. Yeah, that is that is phenomenal advice, not just for the new person, but for anyone. And I know yeah. that because I made those mistakes when I first started. I was just so excited to to get going and allocate some capital that right. I just started throwing stuff at anybody, right? So yeah. I wasn't doing the proper valuation. But more than that, I didn't figure, hey, what what do I need, right? I had just quit my W-2. What I needed was cash flow right. and I'd sold a bunch of assets. So I needed tax. I needed both of those. Mm-hmm. And what did I do? I, I think I jumped into a development deal, right? Oh, that yeah. has 
no cash flow and and not a whole lot of tax benefits hold, hold uh, for me breath. at the hold your breath yeah. fingers right yeah <laughs> right so i wasn't aligned and so i think that's just so important that's a great point you bring up that that's fantastic so once you figure that out like okay I kind of know what my general goals are in this investing. You know, I've, I've selected a few asset classes. What, what, what next, right? How do you vet an operator? How do you find an operator first? And yeah. then how do you, how do you actually decide? Yeah, that's the person I want to wire 50 grand to. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, you certainly want to, I mean, just shameless plug for your organization, look for organizations that have been, uh, either on your podcast or that, that, you know, vetted a bit on your website or that those in your community have already invested with. Um, I, a lot of our investors that approach us for our active business, for the DeRosa group typically come in through referrals. Um, and so, uh, or they find us online or these kinds of things. Um, but the best warm leads come in through referrals from other investors that have worked with us and are happy with other work that we've done. So um, if I'm looking to get fresh into the business, I would look uh, for referrals from people that have already worked with operators and that they're, and they're, and they're happy, right? Um, you could also look in and, and uh, once you've maybe gotten some referrals or maybe found some folks through podcasts you listen to um, or through a, uh, through other research, you want to read some content about that operator. Do the old, do the good old Google search, you know, um, Google them and don't read the first two things that come up in the fold because those are probably put there through Google pay-per-click advertising by the operator themselves, you know, um, scroll yeah. down a little bit, maybe go to page three, start on page three or four of your Google search and work backwards from there, right? Um, about other things written about the operator, reviews, those kinds of things. Um, read articles that they wrote because you'll get into a bit of their mindset, a bit of their thesis, you know? Uh, like for an example, if you did that on DeRosa Group, my company, you would discover that one thing we stand for is transforming lives through real estate. And so you may or may not like this, but at DeRosa, we will not do an investment, Jim. If it doesn't, fi- if it doesn't have a human impact factor, we won't do it, right? Um, because we believe you can make money while you make a difference, but you, that, that may not speak to some investors that, that don't want that as a parameter. You, know? you might want to just invest like an operator that's really there to just drive yield and get you the absolute best return on investment they can. We do that too, but we also do it under the confines of human impact as well um, as, a, as a company. So that's something you should know. And you'll find that out, that out real quick when you research our company, as you will find out other things from other operators. For the things, Jim, full cycle deals, have they, did they get in? Like how long, how long have they been in, right? Because uh, right. so many operators right now, Jim, got in like a year or two ago. Um, and, that, and that's cool. I get it. Uh, but I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to invest with somebody that's only been doing this for a little bit. I would want to invest with somebody maybe that's seen other cycles besides an up cycle, which is what we've seen in the last 10 years. Yes. Um, invest with somebody that's got a few grays like I do, um, that has seen a down cycle uh, and an up cycle. So, um, you know, th- that's seen different changes in the market. And they get that real estate doesn't always just go up 10% every year. Uh, so those are a few tips. I hope those help. Oh yeah, it definitely does. And, and the biggest too, I, I didn't realize that. I thought, so real estate doesn't go up just 10% every year. I thought no. that was baked in. I, right. I thought it was law, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it, it has been, but as you know, you know, past performance is not indicative of future results, right? Right. Um, any good financial planner will tell you that. 
Yeah, no, of course it doesn't always go up, but I think it's a great point because it has done that for so long that everyone's gotten used to it. And mm-hmm. now people are saying, oh my gosh, you know, things might not go up forever or they, they missed a distribution here or there. And, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, like the sky is falling and it, it's just, it's a market that goes up and down. So, you know, now we're kind of into it, right? The, the uncertainties in the market now, it, things aren't going straight up. So now how should LPs be navigating this change in the market, the interest rates, insurance costs are going up. Um, I expect that instead of you know a deal, uh, you having my capital for three years, you might have it for five or seven because you can't get the business plan done in two or mm-hmm. three years anymore. How are LPs? How should we be looking at this? How do we navigate through all this? So, folks have invested up until now, Jim, on IRR. Uh, which is primarily, if you look at the way IRR breaks down on multifamily deals anyway, and, and the same plus self-storage, those kinds of things. Um, but the components of IRR are all things, appreciation, cash flow, return of capital during the life cycle of the deal through refinances, that kind of thing, right? Um, and a major component of that up till now has been a property appreciation, right? And so if you're looking at a deal look to see what component of the profit that the operator is telling you they're going to give you is based on appreciation and what percentage of it's based on cash flow or based on things they can't control, right? What they can control is operational thesis, uh, business plan, those kinds of things. That's going to govern cash flow, right? But what the property sells for five years from now, the operator has some control over pushing NOI or pushing property value to the point where it'll be worth more, right? But I'll tell you what, as hard as they can, an operator cannot control the cap rate, you know, um, and cannot control what the market's going to want to buy that property from, for the, from them for in the future. And I get that at some point you got to sell and at some point that's where some profits should come from. But as a LP, I would be very scrutinous of deals where the majority of the profit is based on upside and very little of it is based on what you make during the hold cycle. If it's like, hey guys, we're going to get in, we're all going to hold our breath for a really long time and then we're going to sell the property for double what we paid for it five years from now. Let's all get a you know, yeah. um, that would be, and that deal has been pitched and then fully funded a couple of years ago and it probably did well, but that same deal probably should get a lot more scrutiny today because I don't think we, we may, Jim, end up in a stagnant real estate environment, maybe a slightly declining in property value. Now I'm not a, a crash doomsday predictor guy. Uh, I think that the economy tends is going to work its way out on this thing, but I do think the real estate is certainly not going to go up you know, may not go up 10% a year like it has been, and maybe we'll stay the same or drop a little bit. And if that happens, then your returns are going to be clipped if you're, ba- if you're looking for, um, if you're, if you're looking for, um, uh, appreciation based IRR. Yeah, that, that's fantastic uh, advice. So when you're talking about looking at the IRR and trying to figure out if it's, you know, the, the current, the, the kind of the operations or the appreciation part of yeah. it, is that, is that what we call IRR partitioning? And, and how do you do that calculation? I don't want to get in the weeds because our, one of our founders, Steve Sue, his favorite thing is IRR partitioning. So I'm even afraid to say the word, um, without him here. But is that, cause we, we do the, and we have a, a deal analyzer and it, and it helps you calculate that and yeah. look at that. But Steve's the only one that knows how it works, I think. So is that kind of what you're looking at? You want to make sure yeah. that, you know, there's a lot coming from operations 
and that's your focus, not the upside appreciation. Oh, it was great. It was great hanging out with you and Steve at uh, at the best ever conference, by the way, out there in Salt Lake City. Um, yeah. And I would defer the actual like nuts and bolts of the calculations to him. But yes, IRR is a component based calculation. It, it is compartmentalized. There, I mean, I, there are things that contribute to it, such as the cash on cash during the life cycle of the deal, such as how much money I'm giving you back through return of capital uh, refinances and that kind of stuff. Um, and obviously, when the property sells um, uh, through me uh, pay, giving you a potential, uh, you know, like a profit return. And the one thing I forgot to mention as well is this wacky thing called amortization. And you haven't seen this in multifamily for a long, a long time because everybody just seems to be doing these deals where the only way the deal works is if you borrow the money interest only, <laughs> you know, if you don't right. actually pay the debt down um, during the time that you own it. And so that debt pay down can become a big profit bump to investors uh, over time through amortization. You're just paying the debt off. Um, and, that, and that's a factor in IRR as well. And that gets me really excited. If I see a uh, investment out there that has an amortization factor and still cash flows as well, that now I'm, I'm really excited because that's something we haven't seen in a while. So yeah, we haven't seen it. So explain that a little bit more. That, that's that's fascinating. So you're saying, you know, most of these deals you see and, and the operator, at least in the before times, I guess, you yeah. know, they're they're bragging about, hey, we got 36 months interest, you know, interest only. And what that does is that that makes the deal pencil better, right? Because your 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 outlay of cash is less on a monthly yeah. basis because you're not paying for the principal. But that's then right. what happens when you're on a floating rate and interest rates go up? Now, all of a sudden, you can't refi, right? Because you haven't paid any of the principal down. So you're saying now, look for deals that have that principal yeah. pay down as part of it instead of the interest-only loans, which we were excited about three years ago. Yeah. We're not excited about those anymore. They're hard to find. I mean, but and I'm not saying every operator is putting them out there. And I mean, we're no different in that... Um, um, we might do a fixed rate deal that's interest only for a year or two and then goes to amortization. And during that period of the first couple of years is where you got to up cash flow, up rents to the point where the deal can overcome that principal payment that you're going to be subject to a couple of years from now um, in that. But that and, that. and that's a factor as well. But you really want to just look for deals where there is that. If you can find that uh, that debt pay down as well, like on top of it, it's just understand as an investor, that's really almost like a savings account. That's like a piggy bank that you're getting uh, you, that money just gets tucked away and you're going to get it back when the property refinances or when it sells. Um, um, it's a concept we've gotten away from a bit in the multifamily world, but I think it's going to come back into fashion um, yeah. as people start buying a little more conservatively. Yeah, it, it's a margin of safety, right? You yeah. have your reserves, and then if you're paying down the principal, you have that that gives you more cushion. And in this uncertain environment, I mean that that seems like a, that's a great idea. So yeah. um, I, I love I love having that conversation. One more comment, Jim, is that uh, yes, a, few, a few investors were talking. Uh, like HUD was kind of like the redheaded stepchild that nobody would talk to um, because if you wanted fixed rate debt, you could get a easy up and down, close it with your eyes closed. If you're a seasoned operator, loan through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Called agency debt, right? Yep. People, people forget that Fannie and Freddie have a redheaded stepchild sister called HUD that sits over there in the corner that nobody talks to, right? Um, <laughs> but HUD actually is becoming more and more in fashion um, because HUD has cheaper interest rates, 
You know, HUD is still in the, is to, as, as of today, Jim, in the low fives percent interest rate, believe it or not, with all the rate hikes going on, you can still get HUD yeah. money in the low fives. And HUD uh, is amortized, you know, maybe a little bit of IO, but likely amortized, maybe amortized day one, two, um, if not a little bit of IO, but they push out their amortization cycle, Jim. So instead of like on a home that you and I may live in, it's amortized over 30 years, meaning like I hold it for 30 years and it pays down over that period of time. HUD pushes that back to 35 and sometimes even 40 years of amortization. So that principal paydown is less manageable than that, but it's still there. So you're still getting a little bit of a chip away at it. And HUD uh, will lock your interest rate and lock you for a lot longer period of time. If not for the entire loan, you can get 30 year fixed, you know. Um, from, from HUD if you want. Uh, and as the rates go down, you can adjust the interest rate on a HUD loan. The, you know, bad thing you got to pay. And as an operator, uh, you know, for us or for operators that don't want to deal with it, there is a lot of regulations that come in with HUD. They're going to visit your property once a quarter and walk it and tell you, Hey, that sidewalk has a crack in it and you need to replace it. You know, something like that. So they do kind of, those that I know that are very active with HUD tell me that HUD, we're doing a deal with HUD is like part partnering with HUD, you know, they become your business partner um, mm. in that. But those loans are going to be good for investors, good for us, you know, good for passive investors too. So if I was a passive today, I'd get excited to see a HUD loan because the government is going to be all over that operator and uh, making sure that they behave themselves, making sure that they're reinvesting in the property. You can't be a bad operator. You can't defer maintenance with HUD because they'll make you make those repairs. They'll even start escrowing money out of your monthly payment to repair that roof that's going to need to get fixed in a couple of years or something like that. So as an, as a passive, if I see HUD coming across the table as the finance mechanism, I'm excited. Well, that's, that's great advice too. This is awesome. Awesome nuggets of info you're giving us. Hi, this is Zach Haptonstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise 48 Equity's multifamily investments, Schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. And I, I want to, well, first of all, IO interest only. I wanted to mention yep. that, yep. Um, you know, some, sometimes we get into the abbreviations and forget. Right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. when, when Matt was mentioning IO, that's interest only. Sorry. But I do want to switch gears and talk a little bit about DeRosa Group. Yes. Right? You, from my understanding, and I, I, I think this is still true, you focus on two specific, very specific markets. Is that accurate? Yeah. And, and if so, 
how did you pick those markets? Because they're not where everybody is, and maybe that's why. And then why why two specific markets? Believe it or not, Jim, we don't just go and sit on LoopNet and wait for a deal that shows up at a 10% <laughs> cap rate. And regardless if it's in Detroit or wherever, do we go buy it, right? I'm not saying other operators doing that, but you never know. Um, <laughs> we are very, very market specific. Uh, and it's, it's benefited us. So we are in Lexington, Kentucky, not Louisville. Lexington, Kentucky. And I don't like Louisville. It's just, that's not my market. My playground, my sandbox is Lexington, Kentucky. And then the Piedmont Triad, which consists of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Greensboro and Winston-Salem and High Point, North Carolina. Those are our markets, right? Um, we also have a few properties in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, which is kind of close to where I live. And that's maybe that's why we invest there. But that's also as we were growing as a company, that's where we picked our first asset. So we have another one around the corner from there too. Um, probably not a market we're going to be doing huge scaling in, but you never know. Right. Um, so those are the three markets that we're uh, that we're heavy in right now. And why, Jim, is it gives me leverage of resources in my Kentucky properties. We have 12 out there. Right. I was just talking to my team today. We're going to be hiring uh, some local uh, contract or like local labor that's going to be responsible for working our entire portfolio. Right. Uh, we're installing a, we're, we're very, very passionate about utility savings, um, reducing water consumption, A, to save money on the bottom line, and A, B, just because it's the right thing to do, you know, to reduce water consumption where you can and not be wasteful. Right. So we're going to be doing a lot of leak mitigation, water metering, that kind of thing. And instead of hiring, you know, ABC plumbing to install all these water meters for us, we're going to hire local labor. I'm going to hire an employee whose job in life is going to be to go tighten water valves and stop leaks and install these water meters. And we've over a thousand of them that need to go in, Jim. This person will be employed for years installing water meters and fixing leaks out in Kentucky. That's, that's going to be their job. And they're going to love it because they love that kind of work. And so they're going to, that's going to be yeah. their joy. And we're going to create that for them. I can't do that if my assets are all over the world, right? I can do it because I've got, you know, 1,200 units all in one geography. And we didn't buy them all at once. We bought them over years of time. And because we tripled down on geography of a market, then I can start hiring local. I can leverage local resources. We have other um, assets of people. We have people that sit over top of multiple properties, multiple assets we have out there um, and, and that. And so I can share resources, share people, share vendors. Any contractor is going to take me a little more seriously if I go like, hey, I get you want to replace, you want to give me a really high price to replace this roof, but I've got a dozen other apartment buildings that are all going to need roofs in the next three years. So can't you give me a 15% discount on this roof and I'll give you first look, I'll give you first bid on all the other roofs that we need. And we're able to negotiate better deals through contractors like that because I can give them scale in their local economy, which they can't get. If, if you got one apartment building in Topeka, two in Dallas, one in Atlanta, God bless, but you can't leverage resources like we can. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. Um, and so you mentioned this before, and I, I took a note, human impact factor. Yes. What, what is that and why? Um, well, why is a deeper question, but we, uh, <laughs> the, the what is, I'll, I'll go there too, but why, or what, blah, 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 what is it is we look at what we do, uh, investments that we make. And DeRosa, I didn't get a chance to mention this yet, but DeRosa is involved in two things, um, apartment buildings and hard money loans. 
we do debt because I'm really, lo- I love cash flow for me personally. I love cash flow for our investors. And debt is a great way to generate cash flow day one. Um, because as long as the, the borrower makes up monthly payment, you're getting cash flow back to yourself as the investor. And so if we're issuing a new loan, uh, from our lending company, or if we are issuing a new multifamily apartment building investment, I need to understand that what we're doing is going to make a good impact on people. Is it going to create jobs, right? Is it going to increase the standard of living for re- real humans that are living right now somewhere, right? Um, I, like factors, like, you know, when we have, a, you know, factors on this, Jim, but like, am I going to build a playground? Okay, because that's a human impact factor. You know, um, am I going to improve uh, kitchens and interior renos and that kind of thing without exceeding market rents? So can people get a better quality of living with a nicer kitchen, nicer stove, whatever, and still pay what their neighbor pays down the street in rent? Right. That's a that's a human impact factor. I can give people a better quality of life for the same price that you would pay somewhere else. Can I do that? Okay. Um, can I, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of another example. Of course, for investors, as you know, can I generate uh, passive income, uh, net worth benefits, all the benefits that investors want? That's a human impact factor too, because investors are people too. They, they need human impact yeah. as well. So investor, they, our investors are part of the humans that we're impacting. But we also don't forget, and I had too many people, Jim, walk around pounding their chest, talking about how many doors they got. We at Dorosa Group never forget how many do- how many people are behind those doors. Um, and so I try not to talk doors too many often. You might hear me say units, but I rarely say doors because it's it's somewhat it it, it, it dehumanizes the conversation more than I think it should. Um, now, why? Um, because I, I feel like making money is good. Uh, it's great. Making money is fantastic, but I also want to make a difference. And I just feel like it's part of what I'm here to do because I want to leave a good impact on the world when it's all said and done. Um, I want to, <laughs> I'm a recovering engineer and by profession. <laughs> and so I, I, I have this concept called entropy. And entropy is the, uh, it, it is the propensity of, of the world and of molecules and whatnot to fall into further and further disorder, you know? The entropy means there's things just gravitate towards disorder if you let them do it. And so I think it's our role as humans to put energy towards fighting back entropy, you know, and creating yeah. order back and, and putting things back a little bit better than the way they were when, when we found them because they're not going to automatically go to the way, to a better way without my influence, without me helping getting them uh, to a better place. So that's why. That's great. I love that. Then uh, talk about, so... We have. I haven't really talked about this on the podcast before, so I think you're a good guy to kind of chat about the process that that an operator, a GP, goes through to actually purchase the property before the offering gets sent to the investors. Right? What the behind the scenes? You know, after the deal goes out to the investors, you know, I that's when we see it. But yeah. what happens before then? You know, you've already secured the deal. You maybe you put hard money down. You're hoping that it's the right project you're going to get investors for. So you're taking yeah. a risk. Can you just talk a little bit about how you find deals and the process you go through up to the point where you say, hey, investors, here's the deal? Well, uh, so Jim, most of us use a Ouija board. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but no, I was kidding. I thought uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Either Ouija board or roulette wheel. One of the two. It depends on what you're There you go. Right? Um, so, <laughs> no, it, there, there's, um, 
there, there are internal factors that go into evaluating deals, right? So for us, as I said before, it's, we're very market centric. Um, and so we're just not even shopping in certain places. And so um, there's a deep market analysis. We always put, and this is a benefit because we are a market specific. Um, we always put boots on the ground before we make an offer. Um, I'm not saying everybody, I don't think everybody does that. Um, and that you make an offer based on numbers and okay, then I'll come and validate the numbers are true based on my due diligence. And I'm not going to put myself on an airplane until the deal gets, gets serious. We typically will walk the asset. That's one of our parameters. Um, we will talk to our management partner. Uh, you know, we have multiple management partners in different markets that we're in. Um, we'll likely have them walk it with us, you know, and then we build a business plan the business plan is, you know, the basics, like what am I buying it for? And what am I going to, uh, borrow debt at? And then, but further, like, what am I going to do with rents? What's my reno, my reno budget going to be? Um, what's the property going to look like when I'm done? Uh, what's the cash flow going to look like? Those kinds of things. So, um, that's the, the, the ins and outs of, of what it takes. And then, as it starts to evolve, we uh, it's we have different sectors, right? There's a acquisitions sector of the company, then there's an underwriter and an acquisitions manager and his team. So when they find a deal, they will get it to a certain level. Like they'll they'll kind of like elevate it to point A, which is hey, these numbers work. Um, everything seems to add up. We think this will cash flow. We think we can make this work. So we want to elevate it. And they elevate it to the asset management team, right? The asset management team is the one that's going to go out, walk it, bring the property manager in, those kinds of things, right? And if that, if those two teams, you envision like, you know, mission control launch in the space shuttle, you know, it's like, you know, all systems go, oh, yeah, we're, we're go for launch. Okay, they the asset acquisition says go for launch. Then asset management says go for launch. And then they call me, the capital department, which is those that deal with the LPs, um, and we raise the money and everything like that. And so then I'm the last one that gets it. And I'll look at it and say, okay, what do we got? How will I, this benefit our investors? That's why I ask the human impact factor questions. Um, and that's where I ask like, okay, well, how do we want to take this to market? Are investors going to get really excited about this thing? Um, are investors going to absolutely hate this deal? <laughs> you know, right. um, and that, and how do I want to structure it with investors? I'll be straight. If it's a smaller deal, we believe that all people should have access to what we do. And so we don't put it out to accredited investors only. We'll put it out to those that are already in our relationships and we'll do a 506B offering. Uh, so those that have a pre-existing relationship with DeRosa, even if they're not accredited, can get a look at the deal. Uh, so I'll make that call. Okay, this is going to go 506B. Or this is going to be a, a significant capital raise where I'm going to need a screamant from the mountaintop and grab and grab lots of megaphones and shout that we have a deal. Then I have to go 506C, which is accredited only, which allows me to solicit, allows me to market right. the deal and everything like that. So that's kind of the final factor. And then if all those boxes check and mission control says go flight, then it goes back to the acquisitions team and they make the offer uh, that works for us on the deal. And we're off to the races. If the if the deal gets accepted, we're off to the races. Um, and that happens a lot on deals we don't get. That process I just said. Um, yeah. So you just kind of get used to throwing all the switches and saying go. And it's almost like the seller's the last one to say go, right? Uh, right. So if they accept our offer, then they take it, and we're off to the races. So how many how many times are you doing this to get one deal? Would you say, <laughs> Jim? We've underwritten 280 deals in the last 12 months. 
uh, we've made 40 offers. So I didn't even get to, uh, it got said no, somewhere or another, there was a no in there, right? Right, um, yeah. Uh, for for uh, 240 of those, uh, there, was a, there was a no. Uh, but the, the, of the 40, we said yes to and made the offer. We engaged with buyers and did interviews or did a best and final round or got close on 12. And we have landed in the last 12 months, zero. Uh, wow. And that's okay. We're okay with yeah. that. Um, so the last thing I want to do is do a bad deal. And there's plenty of opportunities we had where it's like, hey, if you just come up another 10% on your offer, uh, you know, you can go under contract. Or if you give us another X amount of dollars or go in with money non-refundable day one or whatever it is. Um, but we don't compromise our principles or our terms around these kinds of things. Because if I end up paying more, yes, I get a deal. Yes, I get an acquisition fee. Yes, I get to keep my trains running. But I also uh, put my investors in more of a risky position. And I think in investors should be questioning that in today's market and looking like, well, what was the seller asking? And what's this under contract for? Well, the seller was asking 15 million and it went under contract for 17.5, you know? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that extra money that it got bid up is all investor risk, you know? Um, oh, yeah. because it's, it's, it's a hurdle that the LPs are going to have to get over, um, in, in overpayment on the property and been paying probably more than what the seller was even asking. And through the bidding process, it got priced up. So, um, I just got to be cautious of, of, uh, of, of doing overpriced deals in today's market. I'm not saying there's not deals to be done. Um, right. but there's a lot of deals that are, that are probably getting bid up higher than they should these days. Okay, and and so let's say that you once you do all those processes and and you get a deal, right? I know you haven't in the last twelve months, but obviously you have deals that you've that you've been successful on. Yeah. Um, how do you decide the exit? Uh, like a deal's cash flowing, it's doing everything you thought it would do. How do you decide, especially in this current market? How do you decide? Yeah, yeah let's let's sell it and give give the investors their capital back and and complete the business process yes, to do so a couple things right we're selling an asset right now because uh, it'll be a good a good return for investors um, and um, in, in that uh, there's another asset we had that we we could have sold and made investors a lot of money but we elected to refinance because we think there's more juice to squeeze there and we also believe that DeRosa's presence is going to be in that market for the foreseeable future. The one that we're selling, we're not sure if we're going to be in that market for the foreseeable future forever and ever and ever. Um, but the one that we just refinanced, that's going to be a market we're in for the long haul. And so we think that we can get investors more, more return on their money by holding the asset longer than we would by selling today. So there is a what is our belief in this market and what is DeRosa's long-term commitment to this market factor that comes in? Um, and what would investors return be if we sold? We're constantly doing buy-sell analysis um, on properties. So that's, that's a factor that goes in when, you, when you're looking at whether or not you want to buy, whether or not you want to sell. Okay, great. Well, th this has been um, fascinating. A great episode. The last question I always ask is, what's a, what's a great podcast that you listen to that you'd like to recommend to our audience? I'm all over the place. I listen to uh, I, I, I listen to Joe Rogan sometimes. You know, when I've got like the three and a half hours to spare <laughs> to listen to his <laughs> right. show, um, and that I still listen to Bigger Pockets on a regular basis on the real estate side. I don't listen to any show, any one show religiously. Oh, I'll give you one show that I just got into: the Ed Milet Show. Um, more mindset, um, more yeah. like interviewing high peak performers and stuff like that. Like he interviewed um, Matthew McConaughey. He interviewed. Uh, um, 
Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> a lot of good folks, you know, like Jocko yeah. Wilnick and, and, and folks like that. He's interview, he interviews, uh, you know, high, uh, high level performers. Oh, um, Tim Tebow, that name was slipping me. Um, but he's, he interviewed him as well. So I like, uh, you know, shows that interview people that have kind of figured out life to another level um, and to get inside their brain a little bit about what makes them tick. So the shows like that really, uh, really I gravitate towards. Awesome. We'll put all those in the show notes. And if listeners want to get in touch with you or DeRosa Group, what's the best way they can do that? You said the website, you said the number, you said the company, derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com. They can uh, learn about passive investing with us because we do offer that. We also offer education uh, as part of our business and they can pick up a copy of my book, Raising Private Capital. If you want to get inside the brain of people that raise money from LPs and get a a, a look at what makes us tick as capital raisers, um, my book, Raising Private Capital is out on that website and they can get the newly revised edition of it um, with forward written by Pace Morby and new chapters written by me in that book as well too. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. This was an uh, this was fan- fascinating content. Really appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jim. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Attention all left fielders. We're excited to announce our highly anticipated second meetup in the left field happening on October 4th through the 6th in Columbus, Ohio. Join us for a fantastic opportunity to meet your fellow left fielders and connect with amazing sponsors and professionals. We have a special infield event planned on Wednesday night, October 4th, followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Thursday the 5th and half day on the 6th. Don't wait to register as spots are limited to the first 150 people who sign up. Stay tuned for finalized agenda packed with partner presentations, engaged panel discussions, networking opportunities, and more. We can't wait to see you in Columbus, Ohio this October. Register on our website and secure your spot at the Meetup in Left Field 2023. It's time to connect, learn, and grow together. I really enjoyed talking to Matt. There are some things that I got out of there that I hadn't heard before, hadn't talked about before, and just just really enjoyed uh, that podcast. Some of the things that really stuck out to me you know, and, and it seems obvious, but I, I didn't do this when I first started, but what do you want? Why are you investing? And you got to figure this out before you invest. What are your goals? Are you investing for cash flow? Are you investing for appreciation, tax benefits, or something else? You don't have to have it solid, you know, written down in, in black ink necessarily type of goal, but just an idea of what are you doing? What are your goals? What are you trying to do? I'm horrible at setting goals, but what I what I did after I messed up at the beginning in my by past investing journey at the beginning of each year, I just kind of write down, hey, how many deals do I want to get in? How much capital am I going to deploy? And what asset classes am I thinking about? I don't always have control. In fact, I never have control about what comes across my desk, what opportunities are available from what sponsors and what asset classes. But it just gives me a sense of, okay, I know that I am a cash flow investor, so I need to focus on that. And here's how I'm going to do it. And as Matt said, you know, you figure out your goals, then you find the asset class, then you find the operators and do the vetting. And I thought that was just a great process to put in place as you're um, kind of getting started. Or, and a great process for you to do if you're in year 10 of this, just every year kind of reset or every six months or every two years, however you want to do it, just so you know that you're actually investing in the kind of deals that are going to achieve the goals that you've set. Uh, and then one thing he mentioned, you know, we always talk about vetting the operator. I think I ask that almost every single time that I talk to somebody because I want to get all the nuggets that people have. And I got a new one this time. Go to page three of the Google resu- results. I think that's that's great, right? I never find myself going past, you know, the third or four, fourth result 
let alone the third or fourth page. But if you go down far enough, I'm gonna have to check it out because I haven't done it yet. If you go down far enough, you might find some interesting things that don't show up up front. And so just another way to search, another way to do a little bit more due diligence and dig into it. You know, we talked about the IRR and you know, I really think what, what Matt said makes a lot of sense is you wanna now with these uncertain times, you can't count on appreciation like you used to. So you need to look at the component of the IRR that is the cash flow component, the, the money from the operations that you're getting today. And we call that, um, you know, that that's IRR partitioning. And Matt and I were both a little bit too, too afraid to, to dive into the, into the actual details of it. But in our deal analyzer for the infielders, we do have a component IRR partitioning. And if you want to know anything about IRR partitioning, jump in the forum and do an at Steve Sue and he will be able to explain all of it. And it's really an interesting way to look at a deal because it will tell you how much of this IRR is due to ongoing operations and how much is due to the assumptions of appreciation. And it probably didn't matter as much in past years or maybe even you wanted more from appreciation because appreciation was easy to get. Now it's harder to get, so you wanna make sure, I think, that a lot of your IRR is coming from operations. So I really like that. Uh, Matt also mentioned interest-only loans and was talking about, you know, how maybe what you want is amortizing loans now instead of, you know, instead of 36 months interest-only, maybe you find a deal that has 12 months months interest-only, which gives the operator a little bit of time to get the, the you know, get some of the, the rehab done and some things that are really going to start the cash flow and then know that the deal can support the um, amortizing loan. And then he also mentioned HUD loans, which, you know, there's all these hoops that an operator has to jump through is probably a pain in the butt for the operator but for the investor having a hud loan is like having the government as he said as a business partner and they're going to make sure that the operator is taking care of all the things that they need to and so having a deal that comes across your desk that has a hud loan maybe that's that doesn't mean just jump on it and go invest it just means hey that 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 might be an advantage that might be a box you want to tick on this one and then finally I always like it when operators are trying to do their best for the communities that they, their properties are in. And so the human impact factor that they look for is, is, I think that's awesome. And not only does he want to impact the people that are renting the apartments, obviously, but he's also counts the LPs. He wants to impact them positively. So when I see an operator who's doing a good job on the actual managing the assets and everything else, and they throw in, hey, we're going to try to make the world a better place. I, that, that always resonates with me and, and I always like that. I really like to make money, but I'd also like to make the world a better place while I'm doing it. If possible, have both of those things in one place. Well, you, you can't beat that. So I uh, had a great time with Matt. Definitely going to connect with him again. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. 
Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.